I invite us to join together in prayer. Oh God, we can flip a switch and the light comes on, but it is by your spirit and your generosity that our hearts are illuminated. We pray for that gift now and in the days ahead, both as individuals and as a community of faith, so that we can see the path that you would have us walk. In Christ's name, amen. So we're continuing in our summer series of looking at the Psalms in our worship service. There's a Psalm for every Sunday in our lectionary, and today's Psalm is Psalm 130. I'm sorry for the, there's a misprint in the bulletin. Um, So uh, instead of 2 Corinthians, it should be Psalm 130. So if you want to look at the Pew Bibles, that's where we'll be going in a minute. More often than not, the Psalms are prayed not from under the confident wings of God's protective care, but from within the belly of the whale, from within the crucible of affliction and conflict and stress. They're prayed out of the depths of pain, usually, such as perhaps our prayers this week for people in Miami or for victims of gun violence or disease. So uh, this prayer, Psalm 130, is not really a prayer out of the depths due to external circumstances, but rather due to an acute sense of the person's guilt or estrangement from God. Sin and guilt, the church through the centuries has, I think, overused as a way of, of uh, maybe controlling people and, and getting people to do what the church thinks it ought to do. Many people have been driven away from the church by this emphasis on sin and guilt. Now, we know guilt has its proper place. The sociopath finds no guilt in what he or she does, and the narcissist repress his guilt and projects it onto others. So there is a healthy guilt, but how tragic that a movement launched by someone who said that he came to bring release to captives, someone who sought out and had dinner with sinners, someone who, when he was asked to to pronounce a sentence on a woman caught in adultery, said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to throw the first stone. And said to her, neither do I condemn you. That such a movement with an amazing founder as this would eventually spend so much of its energy and give so much of its legacy to something like sin management, which is how many people view the church. So today we're going to hear two passages of scripture that have to do with this theme. And the first is a little bit of theology from the Apostle Paul, from the book of Romans. Let us listen for God's word from the message translation. Therefore, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us now no longer have to live under a continuous, low-flying black cloud. A new power is in operation, the spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing us from a faded lifetime of tyranny at the hands of sin and death. And the psalm for the day, Psalm 130, is a similar theology, but it is expressed in the pathos of lived experience. Let us listen for this uh, prayer word of God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are to be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with God is full redemption. God himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. What a prayer. At last, a topic about which I am somewhat of an expert, guilt. But probably no more of an expert than you, I'm guessing. You know, when I think of some of my earliest memories in life, some of them have to do with guilt and shame. Is that true for you as well? Can you think back and some of the earliest memories are things you're not very proud of. Like I remember I was uh, sitting in the couch of our neighbors across the street in Toledo. I was, I don't know, a little kid and we had two neighbors Little Jim and Big Jim. And we were at Big Jim's house, and I was sitting on his couch, and he was standing right in front of me, towering over me with his back to me. And I happened to have a pencil in my hand. Why, I don't know. And I poked him right in the rear. I don't know why. I don't know what made me do that. But, you know, I haven't forgotten how wrong that was and how un uncalled for that was. My big sister got in on it too. Those good-for-nothing big sisters sometimes, she sided with my mother and when my mother was chasing me around with a yardstick to try to spank me, I ran out of the house and my sister went out the front door, my mother the back door, and they surrounded me in the side yard so that my mother could punish me. Not fair. 
My father was not known to spare the rod, let us say. I have plenty of memories of not so much the things I did wrong, but the punishment I received. How about you? Do you remember any of those things? Paul Turnier is a Swiss, was a Swiss, Swiss psychiatrist, say that five times, um, who lived in the previous century, and he wrote a, a book called Guilt and Grace. He was studying the, the meaning of religion among psychiatric patients. And he, he said this, he said, all upbringing, especially that by the best parents and the best schools who are concerned with the moral training of their, of their children and of their success in life, all of this is a cultivation of the sense of guilt. Wow. Now, he wrote that a long time ago, and since then there was sort of a reaction in parenting to a more permissive style and more of an emphasis on the goodness of our children and on the, the, the prize-worthiness of what they do. And we give them awards and ribbons and, and trophies, and, and we admire them. Aren't they wonderful? But yet even there, if they fail to be wonderful or if they fail to reflect their wonderfulness all the time on we parents, there can still be a sense of shame. And so, I don't know about you, my parents, I think, did the best they could with what they had. I think yours probably did too. Uh, we know that parenting skills are, are kind of passed down from generation to generation, as is the way we understand church and Christian faith. My parents took me to church and there I learned that, I learned three basic things. First, that God is holy and demands perfect goodness. That's what the Ten Commandments were about. The second thing I learned was that I, because I was a sinner through and through from the very beginning, I fall short every day and deserve God's punishment. I learned that growing up as a child. I learned it really well. And I learned that God, through Jesus Christ, forgives. But we're still undeserving. We're still bad. We're forgiven. But there's sort of a sense of shame that I kind of absorbed. And it, it sort of manifested itself through my life in a need for approval and a super sensitivity to criticism. Now think about how that affects your decisions and your relationships in life. I don't know if you can identify with that. The capacity for a healthy guilt is a gift. But I don't think I was able to uh, accept that and learn that, at least not from the church, not for a long time. Lewis Smedes wrote a, a book called uh, Shame and Grace, and here he writes about his own upbringing in the church. He says, the good news 
got to me, but I was sunk so deep in my shame I could feel no lightness. Grace seemed heavy. Grace flowed from Jesus as pardon for the sins I was guilty of committing, but guilt wasn't my problem. When I, what I felt most was this glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sin that I was guilty of, what I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, liked me, would never let go of me, even if God was not very impressed with what he had on his hands. Another thing that made grace feel heavy to me was my bound, bounden duty to be grateful for it all the time. Grace was so rich, God is so good, that it was my obligation to be overflowing with gratitude. It sounds reasonable to me. My problem lay in my feelings. I found it hard to be grateful for a gift when I was constantly reminded how unworthy I was to get it. Anybody will feel shame at being an unworthy beggar, even when he gets a little money. And I felt like the least worthy beggar of all. That last little bit of Smead's quote reminded me of sometimes how I have felt when I meet a beggar on the street. Have you ever felt that sense of almost shame, of awkwardness at least? One person has far too little and the other has so much. Well, at any rate, as I said, there is a place for a healthy guilt, but there's an unhealthy guilt and a shame that many of us carry. That is a terrible burden that God wishes to lift from us forever. It is not God's intention that we live with those burdens. As the psalmist said, if God were to keep score, who could survive? Absolutely. And somehow we know God doesn't keep score, but the church has certainly kept score. It, it has tried to keep score with lots of rights and wrongs and, and ways of trying to mediate guilt. Somehow this scorekeeping God is what we too often settle for. The proclamation of good news that there is forgiveness with God, steadfast love, the power to redeem, it has for many of us failed to sink into the depths from which we cry out. It is not just that there is grace in forgiveness and that our sin and guilt is forgiven. We need to know that as Christ abundantly demonstrated, that we are worthy of the grace of God, even if we don't deserve it. Does that make sense to you? We are worthy of the grace of God, even if we don't deserve it, because we are beloved children of God. 
Of course. The only true guilt is the failure to be our true selves. One of the places that I have seen people work and struggle to be their true selves and to understand their worthiness of grace is in AA. Now, I'm not in AA, but I, have, I know people who are, and I have, uh, res- have great respect. I mean, family members of mine, friends of mine, you, we all know folks in AA, some of you. People crying out from the pit, working on hearing that voice of grace and acceptance deep within them. All mature spirituality is in one way or another about admitting that we are, that we've hit bottom, that we're powerless, and we have to let go. If we don't do that, we're not going to get very far in the life of the Spirit. But when we do, even in that bottom, There we will find life and grace. I'm on a presbytery committee that is working some time to look at how the the health of churches in our presbytery. And there's a website on our denomination that talks about vital congregations. What makes a congregation vital, healthy, vibrant? spiritually alive and one of the things that it says is instead of being a closed judgmental community people find freedom to share their stories to encounter the savior and to ask for help there is no shame in that amen